Wow. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you, Sarah. Really remarkably beautiful. And just reminding me again that really powerful music coming out of Danielle in one room, Sarah in another room, Bill in a third room, putting it all together. Very, very grateful to you all. Let me begin by sharing my screen with you. So as was uh, mentioned earlier, this coming Tuesday is the one-year anniversary of the death of George Floyd. The author, the academic and activist Michael Eric Dyson, his books are always powerful and worth reading, he has devastatingly described the video of George Floyd's final minutes as the most affecting murder by a cop that we have witnessed in the homemade cinema of Black death just terrible all around. In response, I, along with many of you, participated in what became the largest and most sustained round of protests this country has seen since the 1960s. This photo is from the Justice for George Floyd rally that happened in Baker Park last summer that I know myself, Interim Minister Jen, and many of you were present for. But beyond what happened in Frederick, uh, the number and size of these protests around the country, around the world, really, is all the more remarkable for having happened amidst the complications of the COVID-19 pandemic. But people just knew they had to get out anyway. It was that urgent. I should also mention two important pieces of background for this morning's sermon. As part of the protest last summer, I offered a well-attended presentation here at UUCF. We had like 75, 80 people for this on July 5th, which is like not a usually a high attendance Sunday. So thank you all that attended that uh, presentation on the background behind the slogan, defund the police. You'll see that kind of at, toward the bottom of the slide. And in January, I preached a sermon on what does prison abolition really mean? The slides and the texts of both of these are available on our website. And I'll add the text of this morning's sermon in a few days. Uh, if you click on that resources link, that's you'll see in the upper right-hand corner of our website, the Black, Black Lives Matter and resources, a link right under that. That's the link to, to find that and, and more. So the reason I'm bringing this up is I cannot say everything in one sermon about the extremely large and interconnected issues of policing, prisons, race, class, and more in our society. So although I've designed this sermon to stand on its own, I've also tried to focus this morning on things I haven't already said previously. So please do check out that earlier material if you're interested in important background and context to what I'm going to say this morning. Uh, I also committed last summer to preach this sermon today on the Sunday closest to the one-year anniversary of Floyd's murder as one among many parts of making the response to his death not a mere moment in time but part of a long-term movement for social change. Not a moment, a movement. And I could talk for a long time this morning just about the long line of similar outrages that preceded Floyd's death. I could talk for a long time this morning just about all the similar outrages that have continued to happen just in the years since his death. I appreciate Lisa speaking to some of that already in the spoken meditation. But I want to do more today than stoke outrage, although by all means, hear me, outrage is one appropriate response. 
Instead, I want to invite us to spend the bulk of our brief time together exploring how might we responsibly change our system to co-create a different and better world. Now, we all have various touch points for understanding how did we arrive at our current societal circumstances. I'll share just one example from my own life, and I encourage you to consider what are the parallels and touch points in your life and how your consciousness has been and continues to be raised around these issues. For me, my first real awareness of the problem of police brutality was Rodney King. I was 14 years old when the acquittal of these four police officers triggered days of rioting or uprisings, if you will, in Los Angeles. As the journalist Sarah Kinzior has said, I remember with Rodney King the anticipation, this time it's going to be different. The officer's guilt is undeniable. We've all seen the video over and over and over. But she says, I was a kid then and nothing has changed except there are more videos. Here's how she concludes. There's been no justice, only sequels. Now, on one hand, a guilty verdict has delivered some justice for George Floyd. On the other hand, I will limit myself to only one among many examples of how the end of that trial has not brought about the entirety of the better world that we dream about. Lisa, again, spoke more about this. To just name one, Micaiah Bryant, a 16-year-old girl, was killed by police officers, four bullets, on the same day that Derek Chauvin was declared guilty of murdering George Floyd. It's important to wrestle with these complicated truths, but I do also not want to get lost in debating the details of one case, because if we zoom out, here's the more salient statistic. The guilty verdict in the case of George, uh, in the guilty verdict in the case of Derek Chauvin is highly unusual. The murder conviction of a police officer is an exceedingly rare event, the way we currently have our system designed. As the New York Times said, a very rare conviction. More specifically, there have been only seven murder convictions of police officers for fatal police shootings since 2005. Now, for the sake of argument, we could stipulate that many police shootings may well be justified within the current framework of the system. But what has led to so many protests against police brutality over the years, from the LA riots or uprisings 30 years ago that I first remember, to the George Floyd protests last summer, and so much more before that and in between, it's this growing sense that the system is too often rigged that are not holding some police officers accountable for routine cruelty, for wanton abuse of power, and even for murder. In the words of one New York Times reporter, there is this wide gulf between the public perception of police violence, what the public thinks should happen, and how police violence is routinely treated in court. If you want to dive into the data, one excellent resource is the Washington Post police shooting database. They've been keeping track. For now, I'll highlight just one particularly relevant statistic related to the Black Lives Matter movement. That is that Black Americans, Black citizens of this country are killed at a much higher rate than white Americans. Although half of the people shot and killed by police are white, Black Americans are shot at a disproportionate rate. They account for less than 13% of the U.S. population, but Black Americans are killed by police at more than twice the rate of white Americans. 
So in the words of our UU6 principle, what might we do differently to create a world of peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but truly for all? And arising out of the George Floyd protests, the most attention-catching and controversial slogan of what we might change is defund the police. And I want to go deeper into the context around that hashtag this morning. Let me say up front, no one is saying that all police officers are bad. We have members of this congregation who are police officers, as well as members and friends of this congregation who have close family members who are police officers. Likewise, members of this congregation have had horrific encounters with the police and have had family members who have had horrific encounters with the police. I can think off the top of my head of two pretty scary encounters I've had personally with authoritarian, abusive police officers that I wasn't sure how the situations were going to go. And I'm a pretty privileged white dude. Defund the police is bigger than what any individual does or doesn't do. It's a call for change at the level of systems and institutions and culture. Activists invite us to consider that behind that hashtag, defund the police, they would say, the message is actually pretty clear. The message is that policing in America is broken. I mean, just look at this image, and I could show you so many more of out-of-control activity. Policing in America is broken. Policing in America must change. The question is, how? As a starting point, it's important to acknowledge that we're not just talking theoretically. We already know that the way we have things set up with our system of policing in the United States, it is not the only way to do things. Our country spends more on policing than almost all our peer countries and much less, relatively speaking, on social services. So when you hear defund the police, what that slogan is calling for is not only just taking money away from the police and not doing anything else. It's talking about reallocating that money to fund things, to fund communities. And, you know, some people even say like refund communities. We've never actually funded them in the first place. So we need to fund uh, things that might help prevent the need for police in the first place. Safe and affordable housing, health care, education, living wage employment, child care, mental health treatment. The hope is that better living conditions will eliminate many of the root causes that contribute to violent crimes being committed in the first place. In addition to improving our social safety net, there are interesting studies that show it's even more effective. So we should do all those things. And it's even more effective in lowering violent crime rates if cities also fund physical upkeep, knocking down vacant buildings, cleaning vacant lots, putting in street lights and video cameras. So take some of that funding from the police and do some of these physical upkeep things as well. And let me add in one other important angle that is often let, left out of this whole defund the police discussion. Folks often fail to mention the ways that police misconduct, it has been defunding cities for decades. In the past 10 years alone, look at New York City, almost $2 billion to pay for police being cruel, abusive, and murderous. Like, what could we do with those $2 billion? And we could go on down the list. U.S. cities in just the past decade have spent more than $3 billion to settle police misconduct lawsuits. Even with just the murder of George Floyd, over $20, 
the city of Minneapolis is going to pay $27 million to his family to settle a wrongful death lawsuit. All of that money, all of that human suffering and anguish over an alleged counterfeit $20 bill, the loss of a father, a son, a brother, a friend. Behind the hashtag defund the police, the message is clear. Policing in America is broken. We need systemic, institutional, cultural change. And here's where I want to invite us to go one step further. Some of you may be thinking, why not use a different slogan? Well, for one thing, hashtag reallocate police budgets. It just doesn't really get people talking, right? It's not as provocative. It's not as attention catching. It's not as edgy. Hashtag fund community. That's good, but it doesn't directly address that many activists are precisely attributing a major source of the problem as overfunding police. And whether various ones of us ultimately agree or disagree, I do want us to at least understand that an increasing number of social justice activists do actually mean defund the police literally, completely, in the sense of total abolition, over time. But let me say more about that by way of introducing you to the New York City-based educator and organizer, Mariama Kaba, for anyone unfamiliar with her. Kaba is among the most interesting and influential people in the burgeoning abolitionist movement. And there's some really interesting ways that I don't have time to fully unpack to think about the ways that prison abolition and police abolition is related to the 19th century abolition movement for freedom from enslavement. Similar to how Rodney King was a wake-up call for me, Kaba names, and some of you will remember this, the police killing of Michael Stewart as formative to her own political awakening. On September 15, 1983, Stewart, a 25-year-old African-American artist, was arrested for graffitiing the subway. This is kind of an equivalent for, I mean, how much does it cost to buy some paint? I know it's an, it may be an eyesore. But this is what happened to Stewart for graffitiing the subway. Transit police beat him hogtied him, he never again regained consciousness. Nearly two years later, an all-white jury acquitted six police officers that were accused of murdering Stewart. Long before the police killing of George Floyd raised awareness about defund the police, Kaba has been a leader in the movement to dismantle our current system of policing and prison in this country. This photo is of her from a decade ago when she was already an emerging leader in abolitionist circles. If the sermon leaves you curious to learn more, a few years ago, a few months ago, excuse me, Kaba published an important book titled, We Do This Till We Free Us. I love that title. We do this till we free us. Abolitionist organizing and transforming justice. It's pretty short. It's around 200 pages. It's both accessible and engagingly written. It opens with an important essay with the title. So you're thinking about becoming an abolitionist. That essay alone is worth the price of admission. It's not an expensive book. Perhaps the biggest misunderstanding about the abolitionist movement is that this idea that they're proposing, oh, just get rid of um, police and prisons tomorrow and leave the rest of the world as it is. That would be a disaster, admittedly. Abolitionists, however, are talking about something much more interesting than that. They are challenging us to be more honest about the ways that our current approaches to policing and caging our fellow citizens, that is also a disaster. And then to imagine 
what would our country look like if we had billions of dollars freed up currently spent on policings and prisons if we started the process of reallocating that on a basis that you know increased over time to spend instead on housing and food and education for all the question that gets to the core of kaba's definition of what the contemporary abolitionist movement is all about is this abolition is about create you know what will free us Abolition is about creating the conditions that would allow for the dismantling of prisons and policing and surveillance and the creation of new institutions that would actually work to keep us safe and that are not fundamentally oppressive in the ways that prisons and policing are. We're not going to get there tomorrow, but might we start the process of taking steps in that direction? None of this means, by the way, let me address the single most frequent th concern that comes up. None of this means that if your life is in immediate danger later today, I'm not saying you should not call the police. But I am saying if your life is not in immediate danger, take a pause, take a breath. Is there an alternative to calling the police? That's the radical question that many white people have not considered and are starting to consider and that many people of color have been considering for a really long time. We all of us need to be honest about the many times that calling the police and having officers show up with guns has made many situations worse and too often lethal in a way that might have been avoided. Note those two boxes in the center. Ask yourself, before I call the police, is this merely an inconvenience to me that I can put up with this and be okay? Can I handle this on my own? Is this something I could try to talk out with the other person? You know, just to consider alternatives to calling someone with a gun. Relatedly, the abolitionist movement is calling us to ask, why don't we have other well-resourced options? Why is calling someone with a gun the only, the only answer? to reduce harm? Why are we sending armed police officers? Here, the case of George Floyd, again, can be a compelling example. What if there'd been an option for the store clerk to call someone else to the scene to help? Someone who was not armed with lethal weapons, but who did have authority to hold people accountable. In response, again, we're only talking about $20. No one needs die. No one needs to die over a $20 bill. You know, similarly, ask yourself, if there's a car accident, is a police officer with a gun really what needs to show up? I could go on with countless examples of mental health crises, schoolyard fights, et cetera, in which armed police officers are often not the best equipped to respond. And many police officers would agree with that. Shifting funding from the police to teams of social workers, mental health specialists, and or mediators with nonviolent intervention training could de-escalate the vast majority of situations and begin holding various parties accountable in ways that have much less of a chance of becoming abusive, cruel, or lethal. There have already been successful programs along these lines, but what if we tried funding these programs, and hear me on this, funding them not with thousands of dollars, but with the millions of dollars, the billions of dollars currently spent on policing. Really give these programs a chance. Last month, I should name, there was one move in the direction of greater police accountability closer to home. Maryland became the first state to repeal its powerful law enforcement officer's bill of rights and to set new rules for when police may use force and how they are investigated and disciplined. More broadly, further steps could include passing the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, 
which among other things, bans chokeholds. It would end qualified immunity for police officers that has resulted in only seven police officers being held accountable for terrible violence. This bill passed the U.S. House of Representatives in February, but continues languishing in the Senate unless there is filibuster reform. The BREATHE Act, supported by the Movement for Black Lives, would go further to divest taxpayer dollars from policing and invest in alternative, community-based approaches to public safety. The good news is that around the country, there are already increasing examples of experiments in these directions. I'll name just a few. In Denver, Colorado, there's been success with a program that replaces police officers with healthcare workers. So when people call 911 in Denver for mental health and substance abuse calls, there's a chance increasingly that a mental health person will go out instead of a police officer with a gun. In Austin, Texas, the city council recently reallocated funding from the police budget to purchase a hotel that will be transformed to 60 units of permanent supportive housing for people experiencing chronic homelessness. In Seattle, Washington, the city is reallocating $30 million from its police budget through a participatory budgeting process to allow the public to discern the most needed health and safety priorities. In San Francisco, California, voters abolished a law that said we can never have police officers, full-time officers below 1,971. So now that can be adjusted and reallocations can happen accordingly. There is, of course, much more to say about all this. For now, I hope that you have some further context for understanding that slogan, defund the police, and that I've helped to awaken our individual and our collective imagination further that the way things are, it is not the way they have to be. Another world is possible. Kaba often says it this way, hope is a discipline. Hope is a discipline. We have to act to create those things we hope for, act one step at a time toward co-creating the world we dream about. There is no promise that this journey will be easy, but I am grateful to be on this journey with all of you. In that spirit, let's sing together, building a new way. <laughs>